as a pastor, I hear stories now and then, and I heard this story, and whether it's true or not, I don't know, maybe it is, but there was a nun, and she had received a very special burden to go and preach the gospel to the Apache Indians. And with this focus, Beetle, um, she was getting very low on gas, extremely low, and she did not realize that she was praying for these Indians and how she was going to be doing this and the mission that the church had sent her on, that she passed the last gas station. And luckily, though, it was only about a mile afterwards that she ran out of gas. And so she goes to the gas station, walks all the way there that one mile and says, can you help me out? I mean, I've got money. I don't think I've got anything, but I tell you what, let me go into the back of the gas station here where we've got a shed and I'll look, but give me a minute. So he goes back there and he's looking around and he can't find anything in church. The only thing he can find and why this is back there, I have no clue, but he finds a bedpan. And he takes the bedpan and he says, well, look, can, can, can you use this? And she looked at him and said, well, I, I guess it's going to hold gas. So he fills it up. And so she's carrying that bedpan that whole entire mile all the way back. But a truck driver drives up to her, stops, rolls his window down. And he says, sister, you have a whole lot more faith than I do. Oh, it never ceases to amaze me how the Spirit pours into me exactly what I need through the most unlikely sources, right? <laughs> Additionally, okay, I, it never ceases to amaze me how the Spirit, spirit source. Amen. You know, I was thinking about entitling this message, God's Bedpan, but I did not have the heart I just thought, you know what, that is not an image that I want them to carry throughout this message. So just take that, Im that image and put it in the shed behind the gas station. <laughs> oh, no, I am entitling this message, Tongues of Fire. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I want us final awakening that God has in store for his world, for the earth itself, that the earth would truly be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, even as the waters cover the seas, even as the yeast leavens the whole lump, even as that rock becomes this huge mountain that fills the earth, even as all nations will be streaming to God's holy mountain, his king happens in our generation will depend very much on this. Apart, of course, church, from the sovereignty of God, he challenges us as we got into, what was it, I believe, last week, that we can, if we climb aboard God's program, if we align ourselves with the very heart of Christ, if we choose to live completely sold out for him, when the church understands this, Peter says, we actually, but from my very limited human perspective, there is something that I can do and church that we can do to speed that day coming. You know, I can remember when I was 14, I gave my heart to Christ and God began to burden my heart for my classmates. Many of them had been through uh, Lombardi Elementary School with me, so, um, junior high school, seventh through ninth, where I grew up. And God began to burden my heart for these kids that I had grown up with. Some of them were from my neighborhood. 
Many of them I had gotten in fights with. (laughs) And God began to have me pray for them. And I just began to say, God, how can you use me? And for about two years as I prayed, there was just this, and for some reason in my mind, especially at that time, when I would tell a story, there would be a hundred details to that story. And trying to simply organize those details into a story that someone could actually listen to and understand was really hard for me. And I would, I would go back and forth and to the point where there were times in which my dad would say, Michael, just get to the point. And so here I am with just, there were times, church, in which I would weep. I had done something in my life and I wanted to be able to talk with them, but it was so hard for me. When I was 16, I got a hold of a book, and it was entitled Prison to Praise. And when I came to the fourth chapter, filled with the Spirit, I I read his experience with the Spirit as a guy who was 60-plus years old, I believe. He'd been a pastor for a long time, and God filled him with with his Spirit. And his, that this deposit inside, though it had been crafted by human skill for years and years, now it was beginning to be shaped by the power of the Spirit. And he saw so much more fruit in his life. And I just put the book down after reading chapter 4, and I said, God, this is what I want in my life. I need you to change what comes out of this mouth, because I really don't do this great job. The next night, and I, the next night I had time. I picked up that book and I read the rest of the book. It's only a short book, <laughs> so I could actually finish it in an evening, or at least the rest. And I put the book down. And I turned the light off and I knelt beside my bed and I said, "God, I am so hungry for everything that you have for me in my life." And I just began to weep in His presence. I began to cry out to Him, God. I do not do that. I want to tell my classmates about you. God had just been increasing that burden on me. And I would share the gospel maybe every great once in a while. And I got up from that place and I felt the very presence of God in that room like I had never felt before. And as I began to just praise him, words came out of my mouth that I had absolutely no understanding what they were. As time went on and you know, every now and then praying in this language that I, I did not know, understand, and as I read in the Bible, I said, wow, I, I guess, yeah, it's, it's there. I see that. That was around June of 19, I guess maybe 78, 77, 77. And, as I, and I cannot explain it. But God gave me opportunities every single day, around three times every day. No lie. What a contrast to my first two years in Christ. And now what on earth was going on? What? And I had just learned that this thing that I read in the book filled with the sing and these kind of weird things that I'd never experienced before. I hadn't, had no idea it was related to evangelism. And God began to do this over the next two years and then into my college years. And I began to have a burden 
that others too would be able to experience the saving power of Jesus Christ and the power of God's Spirit to be able to communicate that with others. The problem, though, is that it's not true. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And can I say that according to the Bible, we cannot preach the gospel without using words. So if you're kind of like me, when I was 14 and 15, and up to just about when I turned 16, feeling completely inadequate, and can I say to this day, I'm still communicate how Jesus saved you to be able to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you feel inadequate, if you feel like you trip over your words, if you're filled with fear, if every time there's an opportunity, you say, ah, you know what? Not right now. It's, it would just be really awkward. I mean, it would, I don't know what to say. What if they ask a question that I can't understand and you pull out of your pocket, pocket your list of 10 reasons why in this moment you where you're coming from. I lived that way for two years. I have wrestled with it here and there throughout my life. But every single time I am brought to the scriptures and I have to conclude, God, this mission that you have called me on, that you have called your church on, is not about me giving my best attempt. It is about me learning to completely rely upon you and cry out to you, burden my heart, number one, and Spirit of God. And so what I'm going to to do is over the next several weeks, and I have not mapped out every single sermon yet, um, just a number of things that we're going to touch on, but we're going to focus on the, the Spirit of God. Being empowered by the Spirit. Now, I've talked quite a bit about walking in the Spirit that focused more on character. It's not that I'm not going to touch on that, but the focus over the next several weeks is going to be the empowerment of the Spirit. Turning Bibles to Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, we see Jesus, the very Son of God, and his personal experience with the Spirit. Before I read that, during the course of this series on the Holy Spirit that I'm in, I'm in tomato torment, and today's sermon is entitled Tongues of Fire that we're going to look at in a moment, I would like you, if you have questions, to text me. Now, my phone is on silent. It's face down. So when it, if, if I get 20 questions, no one is going to know about it except, of course, the one who sent it. If you want to blow up my phone, that's totally fine. Just make sure the questions are relevant to the topic. Thank you. But text me as I'm preaching while I'm preaching. All right? So I'm going to give you permission to be on your phone, not just to read scripture, but to text me. I know I usually don't like that. You know, no one likes someone texting during a sermon. I'm asking that you do it, but you've got to text me. How many... Well, I'm just going to give you my phone number right now. It is 321-377-0103. I'm going to say this about this. I want your questions. And no, I'm not going to answer your questions. The, the questions you text me today, I'm not going to answer them today. Okay, I'm not going to do that. But when I go home and I read through these questions, I'm going to, I want to use these questions to insert into the sermon series, The Spirit's Empowerment. This is, a, this is something that is... Highly controversial in our day. I am truly saddened by this. 
The early church did not have the Spirit. They embraced it. They saw miracles happen. There, there was no cessation of these supernatural gifts, which, by the way, church, is there a, such a thing as a spiritual gift that is not supernatural? No. They're all supernatural. They're all extraordinary. I grew up with this understanding because I grew up in a very traditional actually anti-charismatic church that said there are the supernatural gifts and the natural gifts, the extraordinary gifts. And And as I grew up and I reflected back on that, I did so with shame for who, what pastor would be so bold as to say that when he stands up to preach, what he's preaching is not a supernatural anointing of the spirit. Church, you pray for me. You pray for me. I hope you pray for me regularly. But when I preach that the supernatural, we're preaching my own strength and my own wisdom because I'm that guy who has all of these details of whatever I'm preaching on and without the help of the Spirit, it's going to come out as, come out as a jumbled mess. So if you don't pray for me and you get a horrible sermon, it's your fault. There we go. That's all I've got to say. But I grew up with this. I, I had a lot of questions. I grew up with my mom watching the 700 Club, and then I went to an anti-charismatic. She has answers, and, and they're really good answers if you're willing to study them and look. At them. So we're going to do that. We're going we're gonna to look at them closely. So I want you to also take notes on the back of your bulletin or on some, if you, some of you actually have a journal that you take notes in. Great. And then, one more thing, I want you to review those notes Every single week. So don't just write them down and kind of tuck them away. And so you've got this pile of sermons. So pile them, keep them in a binder, whatever you want to do. That's up to you. <clears throat> but I'm going to encourage you, uh, take the sermon notes. Maybe even put them in your Bible for where you read in your Bible each day. And when you open up, just review those notes. Just take a few minutes. Review the notes and pray through them. Okay, God, this is what your spirit spoke to me. Today, help me to live in that. Okay? We got a deal here? You're at Luke 3, right? Wonderful. This is Jesus regularly called by theologians in our day the charismatic evangelist. The reason why he, he is called that is because Luke, more than the other three evangelists, that is gospel preachers, gospel writers, focuses more on the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit than, he, than the others. And so he's called the charismatic evangelist. He is also the one who wrote the book of Acts, which is where we're going to be spending the majority of our time, as he was praying. John the Baptist wasn't praying over him. He was praying, and while he was praying, he was being baptized. While he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He descends upon him, and I would say it descends upon him to anoint him. To anoint him for what? We find out in chapter 4, he actually quotes from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord has anointed me to, first thing, preach the gospel. And so he, he lists several things there. You can look. It's from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And this is the very purpose. The Son of God was anointed man, though fully God, for the ministry that he began. 
So as he comes out of the water and he begins his ministry, he is immediately ushered into the wilderness. And we read in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized and was led by the Spirit into the desert where in 14, Jesus returned to Galilee. How? In the power of the Spirit. So I'm going to suggest to you, if Jesus, for his ministry, needed the power of the Spirit, and for whatever reason, in the mind of God and in their divine counsel, said, Jesus, when you become man, though you are fully God, for you to work, understand that, but I know that that's true. If Jesus needed that, church, how much more do we? How much more? do we? I personally feel completely inadequate when I find myself relying upon me. So if Jesus needed this, church, I'm going to say we all need, we all need it desperately. So now turn with me. Let's believe, but we are going to be looking at it from a particular perspective. And can I be honest with you? One of the reasons why I'm doing this is because I discovered that when I have taught on the Holy Spirit at length, it has usually been in the theology class, which we did a couple of years ago, and the Acts and the Pauline Epistles class, in which we took three weeks to look at the book of Acts and its purpose and some of the stuff that we're going to be looking at. Some of the stuff that I'm going to show Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the term of which we find in the scriptures here, the baptism of the Spirit. There are other synonyms used in Acts that we'll look at, but this is the empowering work of the Spirit. Now, I know this because as you read with me, starting with verse 4, it says this, on one occasion, while he's preaching on the kingdom of God, on one occasion while he was eating with them, great time to leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John the Baptist, excuse me, for John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father's set by his own authority. Now follow me in verse eight. But you, will, but you will receive a conviction of truth. But you will receive a desire to follow me. But you will, but you will receive what? You, this is what Luke chooses to focus on. You will receive power. Those other things I mentioned come with the, the, the things in his book. As a matter of fact, if you were to go through the book of Acts, when he uses events that touch on the Holy Spirit, he simply he makes a choice that he associates it with power rather than character. Now, if you were to read through Paul's Gospels, Paul's tendency is to, is to focus on the character that the Spirit brings, showing us a purpose here because the Holy Spirit does many things. Before I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins. Before I even became a Christian. Before I even became a Christian, the Holy Spirit convicted me that what 
I was reading in the Bible, and granted, before I became a Christian, the first place I started reading was the book of Revelation, because I picked up one of, um, oh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Go Revelation. It really interested me, so I read it, and it scared me. And But anyway, I, the Holy Spirit began, before I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit began to convict me of the truth of God's word. Before I even became a Christian, the Spirit of God opened my heart in Acts 16, it says God opened Lydia's heart and she received the message. So before I became a Christian, the Spirit of God heart, and at that moment, I believed when I received that message and Jesus made me into a new creature in Christ, brought me from death to life. And afterwards, the Spirit of God sealed me, the Spirit of God, Scripture says, adopted me, Romans 8, adopted me into the family of God. 1 Corinthians 12 says he actually baptized me into the, this one body, me, purifying me, empowering me so that I'm desiring to obey him. And every time I lean on the flesh, that desire goes down. And every time I look to the Spirit and I seek to be empowered by the Spirit, that desire increases to walk in the Spirit and walk in the fruit of the Spirit. So these are the things that the Spirit does. But the other thing that the Spirit by the Spirit to do the work of ministry, to speak and to act. He empowers us there's a list of the spiritual gifts that you can read about in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Peter 4 divides those spiritual gifts between the serving gifts and the speaking gifts. So that if you speak, you would speak as the speaking through you. Wow. It's not that you need to quickly get out your pen and write everything that you say down or the other person saying and, and say, man, that's, that's going to be part of my Bible. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into something like that later because I grew up with it. Oh, my goodness, if we have prophets today, then we need to inscripturate, canonize everything that they say. Well, can I just simply say this? That never happened in the, in the New Testament. Why would it happen today? If you didn't understand that question, here, Jesus is saying, look, I, I'm going to be leaving soon. And the Father is going to send this spirit, and I am going to baptize you in the spirit, and I'm gonna, as I baptize you in the spirit, you are going to receive power, it says, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and that is on you, and you will be my witnesses. To be a witness, you're going to have to do something more than just live for Jesus, though that is fundamentally absolutely essential church that we are living for Jesus, but part of that living for Jesus is being empowered and impassioned to speak for Jesus. And if you're like me, as I said, you might feel like, oh my goodness, I can't do that. This is like, I am so horrible. Jesus laughed and said, I'm going to call you to be a pastor. I said, you've got to be kidding me. But I tell you what, as I began to share Christ, I realized that this was not up to me. And so he says that he is going to empower us to be his witnesses in, Ju in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is his promise. Spirit comes on you. 
We read about this event in chapter 2. So turn there with me. In chapter 2, we read about something that happened on the day of Pentecost. Between Jesus now being ascended up into heaven, which is the, the verses that I didn't read to you in Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven, and the day of Pentecost is about 10 days. So Jesus was with them about 40 days, and there's 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, so you do the math. And so for about 10 days, Jesus has gone into heaven, and it says that the disciples met together regularly for prayer. We read about that in verse 14. They all joined together others. We read later there's about 120 of them gathered in this room. This room is in the temple, we know, because at the very end of Luke's gospel and the book of Acts is like Luke part two, or the gospel according to Luke part two, the gospel of Luke is part one. The Acts that Luke wrote is part two. It's focused on the Acts of the Apostles after Jesus ascended into verse Luke 24, 53, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So may I suggest to you that as they are gathered together in this upper room, verse 13 speaks of this upper room, in verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer in this room at the temple they're not only praying, they are praising as well. Can I ask you, what would you be praying for in view of what I just read to you in Acts chapter 1? Jesus preached the kingdom of God and then the that he would be baptizing them with the Spirit. Would you not be praying, okay, God, oh my goodness, you're going to make us witnesses to the ends of the earth? That sounds really scary. I wonder, number one, who you're going to send. But if you're going to use me, I, I think I'm going to really need the spirit you're talking about and actually speak clarity through you as you share Christ, as you share your testimony, as you share the stories that you witnessed Jesus doing. Wouldn't you be praying, Spirit of God, anoint me too, in view especially of the fact that the Spirit anointed Jesus. So guess what I'm going to need? I'm going to need that type of anointing, outpouring of God's Spirit, empowering of His Spirit, if I'm going to do anything like sharing Jesus, sharing the gospel with those around me. But you would be praying as well. So here they are, they're praying, they're worshiping, they're pressing into God. And on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 1, this is what we read. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. And by all, I assume he means the 120. He does not mean the 12. And the reason why we know it's not just simply the 12 that are being empowered by the Spirit to be bold witnesses, Mary and whoever, plain old Joe on the street who's following Jesus, it includes them as well and not just these apostles, is because when the languages are spoken, do you, and you count them, I can actually direct you to the verse there. I haven't read it yet. That would be verse, okay, verses uh, 9, 10, 11, and uh, yeah, 11. If you count the number of languages, there's, it's going to take at least 15 people. So I'm just going to suggest to you, this is not just the apostles that I'm about to read about that are experiencing this. This would be the all together, the 120. 
And it says that they were all together in one place, in that upper room, no doubt, in the temple, that they stayed at continually. Suddenly, verse 2 says, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. Have you ever heard the sound of a tornado? Some of you have. Awesome. There have been tornadoes that have blown through uh, Sanford Lake Mary area. I have never witnessed one. I have never heard one. But I have heard, I, I, I had someone in our church some time ago was actually very close to the hurricane that blew through Sanford some years ago and it touched down, boom, boom, destroyed some buildings and businesses on a train. A, a locomotive had jumped the tracks and was coming towards my house. It sounded like a train. This is what he's describing here. This violent wind, this type of wind that does violence, damage, okay, the sound filled the room. This sound of the, this tornado, this violent wind fills the room. And in verse 3, it says they saw tongues. So here they are, and, it, and it, it probably looks something like this sitting upon them, or maybe upside down like this. I don't know. Maybe it's sideways. I don't know. But it it's, looks like tongues of fire that separate, that are cloven, sitting upon each one of them. And came to rest on each one. And it says in verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them to the fire at the very end. So you have a tornado or a violent wind, the sound anyway. You have the fire that comes upon them. Then you have the Spirit filling them. Did you come across the word baptized, like baptized in the Spirit. You don't. So we're going to have to say that this word filled with the Spirit is a synonym. Uh, this, the verb come upon is also a synonym. So we already have three synonyms, baptized in the Spirit, come upon, Spirit come upon them, and being filled with the Spirit. And when this happens, then the Spirit speaks through them. And it speaks in a language that they do not understand, but the people around them do. We have, number one, we have the sound of a tornado. We have fire. We have the spirit speaking. Write all three of those down. Tornado, fire, spirit speaking. And number four, let me just skip over to chapter 4, verse 31. Because if we're going to talk about <clears throat> the baptism in the Spirit, the synonym that we fell upon there in chapter 2 was filled with the Spirit. We come across this very same concept of being filled with the Spirit in chapter 4, and it happens again. Peter and John are being persecuted for their faith. They come back to the people. It's not just the apostles, but it's their own people, and they share their testimony, and then they pray. Who all prayed? How many? Look at your Bible. It says, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. What happens? Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. What would you call that? 
an earthquake. Yeah, an earthquake. We have an earthquake here. Now, that may be God shaking the, the building or the ground. There's an earthquake, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And guess what happened? They were filled with the Spirit again, and there's no period, and they spoke the Word of God boldly. So the Spirit begins to speak through them again, not in tongues, but in a language of the people's no doubt Aramaic, and they begin to preach the gospel boldly. The apostles continue to be doing miracles. Let me walk this through you, throw with you again. What are the evidence? We have the Spirit speaking, and now we have an earthquake. And you wrote all four of those down, right? Now, here's what I want you to do. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah has been through the most amazing experience. The best word I can think of to describe this is a duel. A duel between Yahweh, the one true God, and Baal, a false god who doesn't even exist. But he is represented by 450 prophets, priests, worshipers of Baal on Mount Carmel. So it's 450 against one. It is against a God who doesn't even exist except in their minds that they are worshiping and Yahweh himself. You remember the story. They, he, he, on, on Mount Carmel, there's two altars that are built and on the 450 prophets of Baal's altar, you know, they have the wood, they have the sacrifice and an oxen and they're call, trying to call down fire from heaven and nothing happens hour after hour. They're cutting themselves and doing every sadistic, paganistic type of things and nothing happens. And Elijah says, okay, guys, you know what? You've had your turn. Now I am going to give my God his turn. And he, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to stack the cards against my God. So I want you to go and I want you to get what amounts to 12 pitchers of water, pour it on my sacrifice, saturate that thing. And he says he built a trench around the altar and with the 12 pitchers of water, it not only soaked the sacrifice, soaked the wood. How many of you have ever been on a camping trip trying to light soaking wood? Good luck with that. On into the trench and the trench is, is filled with water. And he prays the most basic prayer, but in it you can hear revival uniting the kingdom again, the northern kingdom that had already been separated, and calling them back to the worship of the one true God. And God flexes his muscles, and he sends forth fire from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice, gone in a flash. The wood burned up in a flash. The fire is so intense, church, that it says it burns up the water and licks up the dust. I don't know what that means. The only thing that comes to my mind is this picture of, what is it, Sweet Home Alabama? Yeah, Sweet Home Alabama. Okay, that's all that I can figure. You know, there's little glass figurines. Okay, not figurines, but I don't know. It licks up the dust, whatever that says to you. I don't know. And what, a, what an amazing event. And there is this chorus amongst the people of Israel as they realize what just happened. And over and over, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh. And they put to death the 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah's thinking, oh, revive. I can smell it in the air. Revival. Yes. And word 
gets back to Jezebel. And she says, off with his head. And Elijah runs. And my Bible says, and Elijah, your version say, and Elijah was afraid. The best Hebrew manuscripts read, and Yahweh, excuse me, and Elijah saw. The only reason why your Bible says was afraid is because they're thinking, well, what did he see? It doesn't say what he saw. It must mean he was afraid because he runs for his life. So they prefer the less reliable manuscript in this case. Elijah saw that there was no revival coming. And he concluded, I am no better than all my other ancestors, the prophets. Here Elijah is. He had a school of the prophets. If it wasn't then, then it was afterwards that he started this school. But he was like a kingpin major prophet dude in the northern kingdom of Israel. I'm no better than the rest of them. And he runs towards Mount Sinai. In the text it says Mount Horeb, they're the same. And here he is. He's waked up after feeling like I just want to die right now. And an angel taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, you need to eat and drink because you got a long journey ahead. And he goes to Mount Sinai. And if you were to look at what happens here in chapter 19 and what happened to Moses in Exodus 33, you see this amazing something from God. And here's what God gives Elijah. Because Elijah is having one of the greatest pity parties. still doesn't compare to the pity parties I've had in my life, by the way. But he's having his pity party. And he's thinking, I'm the only one. Oh, I've tried and nothing's happened. And I'm like, I'm not better than any of my other ancestors. And woe is me. And he is so great. And I hope that you can kind of climb into Elijah's sandals here a little bit as he asks Elijah what he's doing and, you know, I'm, gives him his pity party sob story that still does not compare to mine that I've had before. And the Lord said, go out in verse, 12, verse 11, stand on the mountain in the presence of Yahweh, for Yahweh is about to pass by, just like he did with Moses. Edo, write that word down. Tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but Lord, Yahweh, was not in the wind. Not in a tornado, interesting. After the wind, there was what? An earthquake. Write that one down. There was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord, Yahweh, was not in the fire. And after the fire came, we're so quiet. He's not in these phenomenal, powerful displays of God's glory like he was in the previous chapter where fire came from heaven, consumed the sacrifice, uh, built little figurines in the saint. I don't know, but did this amazing event that will, that will be etched into Elijah's mind as the mind of all of those gathered around as they shouted, Yahweh, he is God. And God was in the fire. The earthquake, not in the tornado. And God spoke, and God was in those words as he spoke. And this is what he said. As he heard it, he pulled the cloak over his face, and he went out, and he stands in the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him again, 
Now, at this point, you would kind of think, Elijah, it's the same exact sob story. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus where you will there anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Anoint Jehu, son of Shnimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Now that succession wasn't going to have his successor. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel. And Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword from, of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to, to Baal, and to all whose mouths have not kissed him. Dot, dot, dot. So Elijah, you're not the only one. 7,000. One who speaks on God's behalf has found what he's looking for. He has found a revival in his heart. He has found that flame ignited once again. He is empowered as God's messenger to speak God's words. And yes, even one more time, he calls fire down from heaven. When Elijah is being taken in a chariot of fire, just before that, Elijah turns to Elisha and says, Elisha, what can I do for you? And Elisha says this. Listen to this. I want a double portion of your spirit. May I, will you allow me to read into that? Even though he's saying a double portion of your spirit, what I believe he is truly getting at is, Elijah, I want twice that. I'll give that to you. He says, I can't give that to you, but God can if you are with me when I go. Demonstrating the sense of hunger and perseverance on Elisha's part. And he's traveling from town to town, and every time Elijah, why are you following me? Why are you with me? You know I'm going to be taken up. I'm going to keep following. I'm going to keep following. He's hungry for what the Spirit of God, by that Spirit of God in a double fashion, a double anointing. Elisha does more miracles that are recorded than any other prophet, perhaps next to Moses. He speaks sharply to kings, and he is never killed for it. He speaks the secrets of the king of Aram. As he's in his bedchamber, he speaks to the king of Aram, the king of Damascus. And every time the king of Aram comes to do battle with Israel, they're all ready. And he's thinking, what? Who in my, in, in my entourage, who, who is, who's a spy? Who's telling the king of Israel what I'm doing next? And he discovers, oh, no, no, no. It's a prophet of God. God himself, Yahweh, is telling the secrets that you share in your bedchamber with your wife. Seeking for revival and anointing and to simply be used by God because he feels as if he has been kicked to the curb and a total failure. God was not in the tornado. He was not in the fire, not in the earthquake but he was in that still small voice as God spoke. On the day of Pentecost, we have the identical images, quake, of the fire 
and then the Spirit speaking. I don't think this is accidental. So what I'm saying then is, what we discover in Acts chapter 2 has already been set up for us in 1 Kings 19. That the very revival that beats in Elijah's heart so that when it doesn't happen, he is completely upon him and he is willing to anoint him again to the degree that there is such a powerful and Elijah says, the one thing I want, I want a double portion of the spirit of God that rests on you. That's what I want. Because that anointing is so powerful, I cannot do what God has called me to do to eradicate Baalism in the land of Israel. I cannot do it without that. Can I ask you, is is there not something that beats within your heart that makes you feel so totally inadequate for this? Surely, God, you wouldn't be able to use me You are talking about all of the others because they speak so much better than me because they are so much more godly and you can use them so much more and they are far more worthy than me. Is there not some... You are just like Elijah and God would say to you, let me speak in a very small whisper. Let me speak through you. Let me call you here to have a life-changing event. You are not just going to help usher in revival, but I'm going to bring revival to your heart right now. Is that not what we find here in Acts chapter? A symbol of fire, tongues like cloven fire above their heads or shoulders wherever above them, every single one of them. As the Spirit filled them, and as they spoke in a language they didn't understand. Why is there fire? Give me just one minute. I realize I'm over. As we come to Isaiah 6, all 120 is they are commissioned to be sent out and anointed by the Spirit, and fires come. Even so, Isaiah, when he's saying, God is saying, who will go? Who will speak for me? Isaiah says, I'll go. Send me. He realizes his own inadequacy. I am a man of unclean lips. And what does, in this vision, what does the angel do? He takes a coal from the altar, this burning speech, even an empowerment and an anointing and a consecration of what Isaiah is going to speak in his ministry. And then one last thing, when the fire fell, what happened to the sacrifice? It burned up. Can I say, as you are seeking this anointing and consecration of the Spirit, what he as God's sacrifice, so that there is no more Mike Curtis, there is no more Zach or Kate or Juliana or Sarah or Mike Jeffords, there is, that is not the one speaking. But it is truly, in both instances, God speaking, the Spirit speaking, the Spirit empowering. The Spirit is doing this because the sacrifice has yielded and been consumed by this fire and to be his witness to the ends of the earth. Can you stand with me? Could we just turn the lights out 
right now. And, and I don't know if you want to come to the altar. You can kneel where you're at, but can we just consecrate ourselves to the Lord today? And if this baptism in the Spirit, we're going to be looking at it again next week, so if you have questions, if you are feeling inadequate, like I have so many times, would you allow him to fill you? Would you allow him to refill you? To consecrate you? To empower you? To live through you and to speak through you? But I just ask this one thing. Will you allow the fire of God to consume you? We are yours, God. Why you called us into your kingdom by your grace, God, we will never understand. You are so good. You have pursued us relentlessly, and you've captured us to be your own. And you have not given up, and you have such to be consumed by your spirit, consecrated as your offering, only for your purposes. So God, use me. Get past my inabilities and my insecurities. Move past my failures, be your kneel before you as consecrated unto the Lord. Would you please, by your grace, fill me with your spirit, God. My sole passion is to bring glory to your name, God. My heartbeat only beats with yours to rescue this dying world, to speak life by your spirit, be there in my own flesh. It must be by your spirit. And I'm asking this, God, not just today, but when I go to work tomorrow, when I'm in the marketplace, when I walk my neighborhood, I am asking, oh God, use me as a consecrated vessel for you. My heart is yours. Empower me. Use me that your kingdom may come ever so powerfully here on earth, just as it is in heaven. Just as. Please, God. Spirit of God, I am asking, as we are before you, whether at the altar or in our seat, we need a word, God. For many of us, the devil has been attacking relentlessly. And we are so weak, God. But your word promises, Lord, that your grace is more than enough. <laughs> Spirit of God, speak truth to our inner man right now. Right now, God. Truth. Where we've been believing a lie. Just like Elijah focusing on his inadequacies and what he believed to be his failures. 
Remove those lies. Remove those inadequacies. Remove all of that pity party and self. Speak in that still small voice. 